Well, as you've heard in the news at Vancouver City Council, the idea of allowing rezoning for up to six units on some single family lots in the city has passed. That doesn't mean it's going to happen right away, but it is now going to be looked at by staff and it could be something we see in the future. When? We're not exactly sure at this point. The mayor saying he would like to see people in those homes sooner rather than later. But let's check in with BC's Housing Minister David Eby is the Attorney General and the Minister for Housing and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk to you about what's happening specifically in Vancouver. Obviously, housing is more of an issue in all of Metro Vancouver and the province. But Vancouver has gone ahead or is going ahead with this making home motion, which is adding gentle density to single family neighborhoods. What are your thoughts on that idea? Well, you know, first of all, I think it's uh, it's brave. Uh, this is an election year, and local governments uh, often face challenges talking about uh, allowing people to put additional density in single-family neighborhoods. So, I want to congratulate the mayor for for bringing this proposal forward. I think it's part of the discussion we need to be having. But more than that, you know, we need action. So, it's it's one thing to allow it; uh, it's another thing to uh, get people to the point where they're actually able to build these units. Uh, it's just brutal out there for rental and for people looking for a place to buy. And and really, I don't understand why we wouldn't allow people who own single-family homes to add more units on their sites um, to uh, to help respond in part to some of that. One of the issues in Vancouver, especially when you compare it to some other places in Metro Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, the permit uh, approval process can be extremely lengthy. Uh, we've heard from many people saying it can take a couple of years to get an approval. Do you have concerns that even though this might look good, that people will be able to add all of these units, if it gets caught up in red tape, it could still be years out to, to even make this happen? Well, this is the huge challenge that Vancouver faces, and it's not just Vancouver, it's uh, it's in many municipalities, and so Vancouver Island, Kelowna, uh, and, uh, and greater and Metro Vancouver. And so uh, the the core of uh, the challenge in housing, as I see it right now, is there's lots of people who want to build housing, including thousands and thousands of rental units and uh, different housing uh, units for purchase, or people want to put in laneway homes, or they're going to want to do this program. The ability to get the approval to do that, the length of time it takes, the changing um, goalposts uh, make it very, very difficult. So um, that the mayor has talked about that, uh, and he's trying to wrap his, his arms around it. But um, they're going to need help from the province. Vancouver sits to approve individual townhomes projects. Uh, they sit more than any other city council. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, they, I believe, uh, mayor and council want to get more housing approved. They want to get this rental housing approved and so on. Uh, but they're just unable to do that, and they're not alone in that. And so uh, that's why uh, in the fall I hope that we'll be able to bring forward legislation to support them in getting uh, more housing approved uh, more quickly and get processes in place so we can get that housing built. Like the, the, this initiative is very important, this particular single-family uh, piece that the mayor is talking about, but but what's critical is the Broadway corridor where there's literally tens of thousands of units of rental housing that we really need approved before the next municipal election because uh, – with a new council coming in, the amount of time that we're going to wait for them to come up to speed and then make any changes that they want to make and so on. And, and the subway is going to be built before that plan's approved. So uh, we, we need that uh, accelerated and I'm counting on them to get that done as well. And when you talk about needing help from the province, uh, aside from approving and, and bringing in legislation, what else do you think the province can do as far as helping out with housing? 
Well, there's a bunch of technical um, pieces that we can do to to um, streamline the approvals process. So recently we said, okay, you don't have to do a public hearing if your rezoning matches what your community plan is. I mean, it gets technical like that. Um, but uh, I think also um, the federal government's interested in potentially providing incentives to municipalities, helping pay for infrastructure that they might need, paying them to approve housing. Uh, who knows? So they're doing a summit on supply in a couple of months. So all levels of government are currently interested in getting more housing uh, out the door. And the, the reason for this, Jill, is is pretty serious. And uh, the last data I have, which is quarter three, the end of last year, uh, we had a 94% increase in the number of people moving interprovincially to BC. We had 5,000. 777 net new residents come from other provinces. But then we had 19,567 folks come from other countries to British Columbia. That's a 213% increase over the 10-year average. And so about 25,000 new British Columbians in just three months. And most of those folks, about 90% of them, are going to end up in Metro Vancouver. So if we're adding almost 60 to 100,000 people a year, uh, to our communities in Metro Vancouver, we need to be building a lot, a lot more housing than we are currently. And that does raise an interesting point, because even with the policy that was approved at Vancouver Council, it limits it to 2,000 lots. So the number being thrown out there is the potential of 10,000 more homes. But when you look at the numbers you just said of the number of people moving to Vancouver, how does that do anything about affordability? Well, this is the challenge. You know, I, I think, um, you know, for some reason, there is a debate about whether we need more housing. I, uh, uh, Dr. Patrick Condon from UBC uh, said, you know, we've approved 20,000 units in downtown Vancouver since the 80s. We're approving lots of housing supply, but those numbers are so small compared to the number of people who are moving in. Uh, and it's not enough to have the zoning approvals in place. It's important, you know, in a sort of principled way to have the laws say that you can build these things. But the challenge is actually getting the housing uh, approved and under construction, and that's where the gap seems to be. So, uh, and and this pilot program of the mayor's is really important, but so is the larger picture of of getting these approvals done. And when you mentioned rental housing too, and looking at those two different kinds of streams of housing, this proposal as well talks about households with an annual income of under $80,000 being able to get into housing. It also talks about housing for people who, or a household that makes about $50,000 annually. Even looking though at how it's being done now, where in Vancouver you can build up to four units on a single family lot in most neighbourhoods, the, the homes that are right now being stratified, there's one in my neighborhood that's an old heritage house. It's been stratified into three units, all of them sold. But collectively, they, it was $6.8 million for those three units. So it doesn't seem like if unless we have a huge amount of supply, how are those prices going to come down? Well, I, I understand that's a part of the mayor's plan is to, to capture some of the uh, additional value of the land. Uh, that comes through the what's called upzoning, which means just allowing to build more units and using that to help bring prices down. I, I think those are certainly uh, admirable and ambitious uh, salary targets, to, to be blunt. And, and I, I don't think he would put them forward unless he thought he could achieve them. So I, I wish him uh, the best of luck on that, because that is certainly a group of folks that need housing desperately. Um, the province is also here to support municipal initiatives like this. We have a housing hub program with $2 billion and low-cost construction financing for projects like this. So, you know, we can help bring down the cost of development as well. But at the end of the day, as you point out, I mean, we, we have, we're, when you're adding 25,000 new residents uh, every three months, um, we, we need uh, just a very significant cooperative effort between the public sector, the private sector, cities, provincial and federal governments, and we're slowly getting there, thank goodness. 
Uh, there seems to be a bit of a, an idea, although he didn't come right out and say this, I don't think, but there, there seems to be a, a slight leap of faith in this plan in that developers will want to build housing and want to do the right thing to make sure it's available to people, which sounds great, but developers are also in it to make money. Is there too much of a reliance, do you think, that developers and builders are going to be doing part of this out of the goodness of their hearts? Well, certainly. I mean, I, I don't know anyone uh, that's working in the private sector that, um, you know, that would commit themselves to spending all their time doing uh, zero profit uh, work. I don't that's just not how it works. So there needs to be uh, uh, an incentive in place for private developers to participate in these projects. And so sometimes there's not. And and that's why the province has to step in and uh, and, and on those market failures with BC housing, which is uh, you know, the, to the best of my knowledge, the largest residential developer in North America right now because there are just massive market failures around private development. But the other piece of it is, is that there are private developers that want to build large-scale rental housing, for example. They want to build uh, significant projects that include large affordable components. And I've, as housing minister, had to call up city councils and attend meetings and beg them to approve these projects. And and I just don't understand why that's the case. It, it uh, needs to be that we're building this housing. Uh, especially when the private sector wants to do it and when they're there, when the conditions are right for building private rental housing that we desperately need. Uh, it's not going to address the needs of the people on social assistance, but it sure will address and support those folks who are working in the service economy in our city that uh, they can't find a place to live. When you call up municipal governments and beg them to approve permits and, and developments, what do they say? Well, you know, some uh, communities say, Penticton, I'll give you an example, 115 unit rental building. Um, the mayor said that uh, it was turned down over the objections of the Chamber of Commerce in uh, Penticton that said, please approve this for our workers. He said that the neighbors in the community were uh, concerned that it would affect their lifestyle when Surrey turned down a six-story uh, BC housing building for adults with developmental disabilities uh, to live independently. Uh, they were concerned about shadowing of the six-story building on neighboring sing- single-family homes. I mean, the objections are incredibly difficult. In the District of North Vancouver, when they turned down 50 rental units uh, that were proposed, they said they weren't affordable enough. But the challenge is when you turn it down and say come back in a year, uh, there's 20% construction inflation and the affordability uh, gets even more difficult to achieve. So when you, what we really do need is, is um, uh, and, and one of the things we've tried to do is support municipalities in understanding the housing that's needed through housing needs surveys. Um, that they've done now and they know what the housing needs are in their communities and to zone uh, their community so that everybody knows where the housing is going to go and that once a developer purchases that land and wants to build it, they know they can build it and they can get a development permit quickly. All right. Uh, Minister, just one more quick question. Do you think then, is the mayor's plan a good start? Does it miss the mark? How would you grade it? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a critical piece of a larger discussion. But it's not the whole discussion. So I, I, I give him an, an A plus for being brave, for putting himself out there, for insisting that we have this conversation about needing more housing. Uh, and, uh, and I encourage him to do more. This is a very small project in a larger uh, school year if we're going to continue that metaphor. All right. Minister David Eby, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. We are now talking about dementia. It is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. There are about 60,000 people in BC currently living with dementia. And a group of people got together with UBC researchers to come up with a set of tools to specifically combat the stigma that is often attached to dementia and a dementia diagnosis. And joining me on the line now is Jim Mann, co-principal investigator and also an advocate, somebody who's living with dementia. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, hi, Jill. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. We also have on the line Dr. Deborah O'Connor, a co-principal investigator uh, with this as well. Dr. O'Connor, thanks to you also for being here. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, Dr. O'Connor, I want to start with you, and if we could just talk a little bit about this, and how much of an issue is it, uh, the stigma that people see or people feel that comes with that dementia diagnosis? Um, We know from both our own research and from the research of, of others that it's a huge issue that people with dementia often talk about being treated as incapable or ignored because of their diagnosis and that this can lead to social isolation, discrimination and really challenge feelings of self-worth. So it's a huge issue, often making the experience of living with some research says that when that for people living with dementia, it's the treatment of others that makes the disease even harder to take than the actual uh, uh, cognitive changes. And Jim Mann, I'll bring you in on this now too. What what has been your experience or has that been your experience? Well, I have been uh, fortunate over the years to uh, to have limited experience, although I have had, um, you know, some, um, a nurse once looked me up and down and said, well, you look fine, when I wanted my wife to be in the uh, examining room with me. And um, so it's, it's, it is that um, people's perceptions of, um, uh, of dementia and the, and the stereotype that is, you know, embedded in the back of their head as far as people being diagnosed and then, you know, basically the next day going into long-term care when in fact there are the great possibilities of having many years of living, living well with dementia. Uh, how long ago were you diagnosed? Uh, 2007, when I was 58. And, and what was that like? Do you, do you remember what it was like getting that diagnosis or, or what you were thinking about dementia when you realized that, that you had been diagnosed with that? Well, I, my mother had Alzheimer's and actually she was still, she was still living uh, when I was diagnosed. So I had had a preview of dementia, if you will. And, uh, but as much as I'm, I was, semi-prepared because I was getting lost driving or not remembering where, in fact, I was going. Um, uh, So it was still, uh, on one hand, um, a bit of a shock to to get the diagnosis, but also uh, it was was a relief uh, in some ways to, okay, it's got a label. (laughs) I can do something about it now. And Dr. O'Connor, does that sound, not that there's a typical response, but but that must be something that you see and that people experience? 
Um, yeah, and I'm going to pick up on an earlier statement that Jim met, that one of the things that as a researcher I've, and as a practitioner that I've heard over and over again is of people getting the message that you've got this diagnosis, life is over, go home and die, get your, get your affairs in order and go home and die. And in our action group, we have people that have been diagnosed for over 20 years who, who are to our toolkit, flipping stigma dots, uh, flipping stigma on its ears demonstrates that that, that many people are still very capable of contributing in very meaningful ways long after they've received a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a bit more about the toolkit and, and what's in the toolkit as far as helping people do that, to exactly that flipping that stigma and realizing that there is still life after that diagnosis? Jim, did you want to take that or do you want me to? Uh, sure, I can, I can start. I mean, the toolkit... Um, you know, offers options, uh, and uh, we have a toolkit uh, that is uh, has a section for people with dementia to uh, offer them um, some feeling of of positive uh, of a positive track moving forward. Um, the uh, toolkit includes. Many videos of um, uh, of members of the action group talking in their own words about the stigma that they have experienced, and um, other videos talking about their solutions to uh, uh, to these uh, experiences, and uh, uh, and also offering their their thoughts about how. Uh, segments of the population have, in fact, um, dealt with them, have have ignored them when talking to their their spouse, um, and uh, so these these the toolkit is um, very much their voice and um, and ex- ex- and expressions and experiences. And Dr. O'Connor, did did you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I think our, our, first I want to draw attention to the fact that this toolkit is actually developed by people living with dementia um, so that they were the key drivers in the whole research process, and that's pretty unique. And that our hope is, is that it's going to do two things. One is that it helps people living with dementia to know that they're not alone and still have much to contribute, and it offers some, cha- it offers some ideas on how to do that. One of our action group members, Granville Johnson, described it as shortening the fear period after receiving a diagnosis by demonstrating what is still possible. Our second hope is that it will create broader change by helping others reflect on how they interact with people with dementia in order to make them more aware of the ways that we often inadvertently discount or diminish the person. One member of my family, after listening to, after going through the toolkit, said she will never respond to someone with dementia um, um, apologizing for their memory by fluffing it off with a comment such as, oh, my memory's not that good either because she realized listening to these the people talking just how discounting that statement was Hmm. Yeah, interesting too. When and it's not as though in every case it's people coming from a bad place, but maybe just not understanding what a comment like that could do or how a comment like that could be received. Absolutely, yeah. Because too often, uh, Jill, people with dementia, uh, 
in the community are are being told, well, you don't look like you have dementia. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, what does dementia look like? And um, individuals are... um, uh, are are um, not physically um, disabled by uh, by dementia, and that causes confusion. Right. Uh, Jim, did you find too, and I've heard from other people that either have dementia or have family members that have been diagnosed, that you find out who your true friends are in that people sometimes will disappear maybe because they might try and and say, Oh, it's because I didn't know how to respond or it was uncomfortable. And do you, do you experience that? And do you hope perhaps that this toolkit will help with that? Uh, Yes, I did experience that. And, and 100% uh, this toolkit will hopefully um, show people another side of dementia that they would never have thought uh, possible. Um, and, and hopefully it will, it will um, lessen the anxiety that people have about dementia. Because, you know, uh, basically half of Canadians that were polled a, a few years ago by the Alzheimer's Society would, would feel ashamed or embarrassed if they had dementia. Well, that's uh, that's not really going to uh, to help um, attitudes uh, from people if they if they would feel ashamed if uh, if they were diagnosed with dementia. Right. I, I mean, yeah, and, and I mean that that sounds awful. Given that, I mean, somebody wouldn't be ashamed or, or feel embarrassed if they were diagnosed with a cancer. Which, uh, again, it's not as though they've done anything to to be ashamed or embarrassed about. Uh, exactly. We've only got a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, Dr. O'Connor, just wanted to know, do you want to weigh in? I know that the toolkit is, like you said, developed by people with dementia uh, to help uh, people around them, caregivers. Who do you think will benefit most from from these tools or who needs to, to kind of take part in this or see this? I think everyone does. <laughs> I think we all inadvertently do it, as you noted earlier, unintentionally. We don't mean to. And I think people with dementia really need a powerful and empowering message that says there's still life after dementia. Um, our action group members came up with the slogan, Dementia Celebrate Life, that there's still positives and there's still meaningful active participation um, available. And so I hope both people, because we're all interacting with people with dementia, not just the person who's got it, but as family members walking into a store all over the place, we all need to, to listen to it, to, to walk, go through this toolkit. All right. Well, thanks so much to both of you for coming on the show and talking about this. Uh, like you said, uh, we all know somebody or are probably have been touched by this in some way. So what a, a great toolkit. Thanks to you both so much. Can, can I just add one thing that the yep. toolkit can be found at flippingstigma.com. Okay, perfect. Jim and Deborah, thank you both so much for being here. Thank, thank you, you very much for inviting us.
Thanks for being with us. Well, many, many industries, as you know, have been hard hit because of the pandemic, and one of those has been live music. It has been a difficult couple of years for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, but things are starting to turn around. And joining us now to talk a little bit more about that is the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra Music Director, Otto Tausk. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, it is great to see things turning around, although I, I must say as well, and I don't know who gets all of the credit for this, but of the symphonies or the orchestras that were able to kind of pivot and offer music online, I thought the VSO did an amazing job in still bringing music to people and making it so people could access music during the pandemic when everything oh. was closed. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's been, it's been, it's been such, a, such, such a strange strange year, such a strange time, um, uh, but the, the the orchestra has been uh, playing uh, all all months and weeks, um, and it's, it's that that has been so so wonderful to find that the support from from the community, but also the um, the energy in the orchestra. That even when we were not able to have audience um, with us during the concerts, we we kept on playing, and I think this has been really important, not just not just for the orchestra, but also just to show. Um, how how important music and art actually is, especially in times when it's um, perhaps more difficult than ever. How has it been for the musicians, uh, kind of keeping up that energy and mm. shifting during this? Yeah, so so it's. I mean, it's 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 always great to make music. It's it's always really wonderful to to rehearse and prepare for concerts. But then, if you actually have a concert where there is no audience, it's very very different than when there is an audience. So, um, uh, just imagine that you play a, a wonderful symphony and you end with a, with a, with a grand finale, and then suddenly it, there's complete silence in the hall, and you you realize, oh, but there was nobody here to listen. Of course, when you perform online, there is. Uh, the wonderful audience, but they're at home and, they, and and on stage as a musician, you don't feel the contact uh, as much as when the audience is actually present. So now we are so happy and we're so grateful that we can actually perform for audiences again. Um, we're still, uh, of course, being very cautious and very careful uh, not to have too many musicians on stage and um, and 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 play for a for a smaller audience, um, for, for for example, for half capacity, so that there's enough spacing between the people in the audience to be safe um, but to uh, to experience um, preparing for a concert and then also having that concert for a live audience that's just that's why we make music has have you had to change then kind of what pieces mm. uh, and concerts are played given that like you said you can't have mm. musicians kind of packed in on the stage now absolutely absolutely so so last season we've we have um, completely changed uh, the thing we normally do. So uh, what we love most to do is play the big romantic orchestral works. So you have uh, lots of musicians on stage. Now that was, of course, impossible if you have to keep one and a half, two or three meters distance between the musicians. So you will have to find new repertoire. That was actually a wonderful journey because you discover so many things that you normally uh, never even think about. Now, this season, where we are now, we have been very uh, optimistic in programming. And um, perhaps um, at this very moment, um, coming with in, in, in this world of the new variants and, 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 and the, the rise of the numbers, you have to rethink sometimes your programming. So that means um, we have to be an extremely flexible organization, um, uh, programming something, for instance, with a choir, um, 
and then it turns out the choir is actually we cannot have the choir on stage it would be too many people um, and and there were too many concerns so you have to change the programming uh, but we're always making sure that when when we have to change something we would plan to play we will never uh, cancel but we will always postpone so um, making sure that that um, the music that we intend to play we will play but maybe not just in this specific week Right. Okay. So what what does it will it look like then as people are coming back mm-hmm. uh, the end of this? Well, I guess we are at the end of this month already, uh, heading mm-hmm. into February and March, uh, and that what what can people expect as they come back to see in person to see the the orchestra in person? So so we are on stage with 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 the symphony orchestra, and and we'll play fantastic work. So this weekend we're we are playing the uh, the first. Chopin Piano Concerto, for instance. Next week, we'll have a Mendelssohn Symphony. We'll, a Brahms Symphony is coming up. Uh, I'll be doing a Schumann Symphony. There's going to be Peer Gint uh, by Greek. And then moving on uh, into spring and, 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 and getting nearer to summer, we are really keeping our fingers crossed that the big works uh, that we were plan to play will actually happen like i'm personally very much looking forward to uh, Mahler's fifth symphony that we have programmed for the end of our season uh, we have beethoven's ninth symphony coming up so there, there there's great works to um uh, to look forward to absolutely and you mentioned earlier how important music is and mm. and how vital it is mm. for people is it a challenge to make sure that it's available in that you you don't have to be in a certain salary range or that it's that it can get out in the community and that people of all Mm. that tickets aren't out of out of reach for people Mm. that that people do get that chance to experience it oh oh definitely oh definitely so so it's it's what is one of our our major goals is to make sure that that music is accessible for everyone um and 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 there's uh, there are a lot of different kinds of things we do um we actually go into the community with our musicians and we actually visit schools um we think education Education is really important, but also trying to find new audiences to come into the hall. Um, and and uh, of course, it, it, I think music. So, so what I actually really think is that everyone likes music, um, but not everyone has had the chance to get to know it. So I'm 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 always convinced that once you actually listen to the symphony orchestra play. Um, uh, almost everyone will will enjoy and have have a wonderful uh, experience in in concert, and I think that's what we're trying to do to um, to 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 convince everyone that coming to an orchestra, even if you don't know music, if you have no idea what kind of instruments, and if you have no knowledge of the composers or whatsoever, you can still have a really exciting and and, and wonderful and memorable evening. I do. I love it also because it's one of the few things you can go and participate in and you can close your eyes and mm-hmm. still enjoy it just as much as the next person. Exactly, exactly. And and I, I must say that uh, for me, the... Of course, music is wonderful. You can you can sit at home and you can you can have music on the radio. The radio is one of the things I, I I really enjoy myself. But sitting in a concert hall and and having those let's say, vibrations through the air come to you um, at that very moment. Um, music is so, um, let's say, it, it, it's timeless in a way. It will only happen at that very moment. And it's going to be different every time. And to experience that live with a full orchestra and with the audience there is, is, is an exceptional experience, which, um, which, I, which I think um, 
I, I really believe that music will will survive this strange time and and um, and will be there forever. But um, I do agree with you that it's absolutely necessary that we go out into our community and um, and, and make sure everyone gets the chance to hear it. All right. Uh, just before I let you go, I want to put you on the spot. If you were, say, stranded on a desert island and you could mm-hmm. only have one piece of music with you, what piece mm-hmm. would you take? Uh, Bach, St. Matthew, Passion. Uh, you didn't even have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I'd say something else tomorrow, probably. But uh, <laughs> I thought I'd be spontaneous and say the first thing that comes to my mind. Oh, all right. Well, thank you so much. And I, I hope people uh, take full advantage and get back and into yes. the theater and enjoying the wonderful music. Autotask, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for, for having me. Thank you so much. It is the last Friday of this month, and that means it's time for us to check in and see what books are making the tops of lists as far as great reads. And Samantha Frankel joins us today, Assistant Manager at Book Warehouse. Samantha, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. So many great books to get to. Let's try and get through this list. And we're starting with one. So this is an interesting one because I feel like we've kind of been living in a dystopian world for the past couple Mm, of years. mm -hmm. But this is also a a book that deals with a dystopian type of storyline. What is uh, this one all about? It's called The School for Good Mothers. Yes, this one, uh, it's a debut novel. And yeah, just as you say, it's dystopian, but uh, it's feeling a bit more plausible as of late, isn't it? Um, It's taking place in a world where there's a government reform program where the idea of mothers are judged on how good a mother they are. Uh, So we have our main character. She's coming from a family of Chinese immigrants. She's married. Her marriage is a bit on the rocks. Um, and her main thing in life is being a mother at this point. And uh, one lapse in judgment, and she ends up caught in this cultish demands of modern motherhood, which is kind of like a big brother-like institution where the custody of her child hangs in the balance. Uh, It's compulsively readable. It's been called kind of a 1984, but for mothers, darkly witty yet disturbing. Uh, It's a real page turner and a super interesting premise, and one I know I haven't quite seen before, so... Disturbing, but yet a good one to uh, put on your reading list. All right. We're also uh, taking a look at How High We Go in the Dark by uh, Sequoia Nagamatsu. Yes, and this one's um, been doing very well at our stores. Um, It's another debut novel for fans of uh, Cloud Atlas or Station Eleven, which I know has been getting a lot of buzz What with a new TV show. Uh, And it's following the cast of an intricately linked group of characters uh, over 100 years as humanity is struggling to rebuild itself in the aftermath of a climate plague that starts in the Arctic in this story. So it's really, it's a story of human resistance, the spirit of us all kind of coming together in the connective threads that tie us all together in the universe. Uh, it's one of those big sweeping novels. You've got uh, funerary skyscrapers for hotels for the dead. You've got interstellar starships. It is really asking the big questions of where do we go from here? So uh, this is a really interesting one, and I know one that our buyer really enjoyed. So one to put on your list as well. All right. That uh, one, again, is called How High We Go in the Dark. Uh, this one looks really interesting, too. Nita Prose has written a book called The Maid. Oh, I loved this one. This is one of those perfect weekend reads. 
Uh, it's the debut novel, um, and it's a Canadian author, which is always nice. And so you have a main character whose name is Molly, the maid, uh, and she's a socially awkward maid whose uh, orderly life is just completely turned on its head the day that she enters the suite of uh, the fancy hotel that she works for, where she finds a very wealthy customer who's uh, dead in his bed. And so uh, the room is in complete disarray. She's come across this body, and it's one of those great mystery novels where you have a locked door, you're unpeeling the layers of all of these different characters and what's really going on in this motel. Uh, I was guessing to the last page, and yeah, it was one I didn't want to put down. So definitely, if you're a fan of mysteries, then you're really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, this one actually, not that they don't all sound like this, but this one sounds, I'm always on the lookout for book club books. This sounds like it would be a very good one. catnip for book club. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Also, uh, let's move on to A Marvelous Light. What is this one about? So this one, it's got mystery, magic, murder, long looks full of yearning. Uh, It's fun for um, if you're missing kind of the um, like Downton Abbey, um, Bridgerton type style ones, but with a bit of a magical twist. So it has a young civil servant who is named as a liaison to a secret magical bureaucracy in Britain. And he's having to work with his magical counterpart to unravel this dangerous conspiracy that's going on. While at the same time, they're dealing with a deadly curse and some unexpected attraction between the two main characters. So it's a fabulous queer historical fantasy set in Edwardian England. Uh, it's been a huge step favorite at many of our stores and it's just a lot of fun to read uh, this one too if unless uh, i'm wrong is that looks like this one is also a debut author which is great to see so many yeah. debut authors it's been a very good year so far for debut authors and yeah it's the first in a trilogy so there will be more coming which is always nice all right that is always nice to have something to look forward to when you finish mm-hmm. the book uh, the parad or sorry to paradise what's this one so this is by Hanya Yanagihara, who was the author of A Little Life, which was the finalist for both the National Book Award and the Booker. Uh, it's the book that I have the most customers coming in telling me that A Little Life utterly destroyed them and they loved every minute of it. So this has been a very hotly anticipated book. Uh, it's very ambitious in that it's spanning three centuries and three different versions of America Um, You've got 1893, 1993, and 2093, and it's looking at these three very different versions of what's going on, um, but with recurring notes and themes kind of linking the stories throughout. Uh, It's looking at the big themes of, you know, lovers, families, loss, the idea of what unites us as not just people, but as citizens of one country, uh, and looking at just the qualities that make us humans, like fear, love, shame, loneliness. And looking at all these big ideas and how they look. It is a big book. I think it's something like 700 pages. So it is definitely a time commitment. But uh, it's one of those that sounds like it's really worthwhile. I'm always amazed, too, when authors can weave a story and do it in those in three different time periods and somehow bring it all together. Yes. We wonder how they came up with such a world and such many worlds and able to have the links tie together. Uh, the next one we're talking about, uh, this is very timely, and I know Rosemary Sullivan has been making the rounds and talking about her book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. Yes, this one. What a fascinating sounding book. It's uh, using all of these new technologies and recently discovered documents and sophisticated new techniques in they and an international team, and they're finding out the big mystery of all that we've never been able to have the answer to of, is who betrayed Anne Frank and her family many years ago. 
and why did it happen? So this is one that I know a lot of people are really interested in finding out how exactly they've gone about finding out this information. Um, so for true crime fans out there, this is a great one. You're leaving history. And yeah, it just sounds fabulous. And like just the technology, it's amazing what we have available today. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting one for sure. Uh, a lot of readers will likely recognize the name Ann Patchett, a new book mm-hmm. by Ann Patchett, These Precious Days. So a lot of people are familiar with Ann Patchett's work for fiction, but she's also a fantastic essayist. Uh, this is a new collection by her, and um, it's just it's a beautiful collection of stories. I love essays and that, especially I feel like with our busy lives, it's nice to be able to just pick something up, read it in one sitting. And uh, as with all of Patchett's work, you know, it's beautifully written. It has a warmth and a wit to it. Um, nice collection, just looking at her own experiences and how she's transforming kind of her private experiences into kind of a universal, relatable themes for her readers. And um, yeah, if you're a fan of her or you're a fan of just great writing, definitely a good one to pick up. You're right. It's not something less kind of intimidating about when it's essays or short stories. You don't have to make that commitment if you're not ready to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love having that kind of thing on my lunch break at work. You know, you don't have a lot of time, but you really want to be able to dig into something. So, yeah, they're great to just pick up if you're yeah crunched for time and you still want to read something great. And uh, another very common theme for people, food. And uh, Stanley yeah. Tucci's <laughs> book, Taste, I understand, is very popular. Oh, my gosh, we could not keep this one in stock over Christmas. So uh, we luckily have restocked. And it was one of my favorite reads of last year. Um, It's a culinary memoir about the celebrated and much loved Stanley Tucci. It's the stories of his lives, his highs and his lows, uh, growing up in an Italian-American family, and just his all-around encompassing love of food and cooking. Um, There's about 10 to 20 recipes scattered throughout, which I know I want to make all of them. They sound fantastic. And he's such a natural storyteller. You feel like you're just, when reading it, like sitting at a table with him, having a glass of wine, eating a bowl of pasta. And I know it's one that I do not reread memoirs very often, but I feel like this is one that I would probably revisit at some point. (laughs) All right. Well, that's a very good endorsement of that book for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, One last one to get to uh, by Danielle Daniel, Forever uh, Birchwood. What is this one about? So I wanted to put a kid's book on there. It's a middle grade debut. Um, Some people might be familiar with Daniel's uh, in that she's a picture book author of Sometimes I Feel Like a Fox, which has been a best-selling one for a number of years. And she is going to be having her fiction debut out in March called Daughters of the Deer. Now, this one, it's about an adventurous, trailblazing young girl named Wolf who lives in a northern mining town and spends her days exploring the mountains and the wilderness and has this amazing secret refuge in a treehouse hideaway, which she calls Birchwood. Um, it's looking at Indigenous history through her mother's side of the family, but it's also looking at bigger issues of like environmental protection efforts, and kind of just the idea of what's going on in her small town. And what I really like about this is that it really captures that time in a young person's life where everything feels very urgent and aching and she's wanting to save the environment. She's got this group of friends and all that comes with that. And uh, it was just, it really captures that timeless preteen feeling of wanting to hold on to that time while everything around you is changing. So I thought this was really great and I'm really excited to see what her uh, adult debut comes with since she's a great writer. 
All right. Uh, nice to have one on there, too, for the younger readers out there Definitely. looking for something. All right. Well, Samantha, we're right out of time, but thank you so much. A lot to, to digest. So many books and great reads out there. Thanks so much for joining us and bringing Thanks us up to date. Thank you for having me, Jill.